I'm especially excited to be here today, turning the tables around and finding out a little bit more about you, about how the podcast got off the ground, and really what your experience has been like running this amazing piece of living history for listeners all over the world. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. And now for something completely different. Today I'm chatting with listener Peter Ryan, who will be turning the tables and questioning me about my Cold War story. Now, listeners, I can see you are enjoying the podcast by the increasing listener numbers. So if you'd like the podcast to continue, all I'm asking for is a few quid or US dollars a month to help keep us on the air. Plus, you become the envy of your friends with that sought after Cold War Conversations coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't donate financially, then you can also help us by leaving a written review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume this podcast. By the way, we've opened a Cold War Conversations merchandise store, so head over to coldwarconversations.com slash store to see what you can purchase. Peter asks me about how the podcast started, what motivates me alongside my recommended Cold War TV programs and movies. We welcome Peter Ryan to our Cold War conversation. So, where, where should we start, Peter? Well, look, I, I just want to say first off, I have been an avid fan of the podcast since I discovered it several months ago. Uh, as a, a legacy Cold Warrior, somebody who grew up in the 1980s and who welcomes the chance to learn more and more about one of the most fascinating periods in our lifetime, finding your podcast was really a treat for me. Uh, I, I've uh, relished every one of them. And I'm especially excited to be here today, as you say, being the interrogator, turning the tables around and finding out a little bit more about you, about how the podcast got off the ground and really what your experience has been like running this amazing piece of living history for listeners all over the world. Well, I'm flattered by your comments, Peter, and I have been amazed by the response from the listeners. It ha it has been amazing, and certainly nothing that I predicted when I when I first started this. So, um, looking forward to sharing a bit of my Cold War story with the listeners. Well, wonderful, wonderful, and maybe a good point to start, Ian, would be to find out a little bit from yourself. What really got your interest, not necessarily in the podcast, but what got your interest in the Cold War going? When did it start? What was the the spark that really lit it? Right. Well, I was born in the in the 1960s. So, you know, a lot of my or all of my childhood and certainly some of my um, early adult life was with the shadow of the Cold War. So I was around probably not that much aware of uh, the Prague Spring 1968 with Dubček, um, the upheavals in Poland, the rise of solidarity. I very much was aware of, and I'll come on to that um, in a moment. But I'm, I've always been fascinated, and I think a, a, a number of the listeners are fascinated by the spy stories and the, you know, all the espionage and and the the sort of craziness of of nuclear war as well. I think that very much in my youth, you know, a lot of demonstrations, a lot of activity around anti nuclear. A lot of activity around anti-nuclear protests, so there was that sort of ever-present looming threat of of nuclear war, and that's an area I do find fascinating. I mean, I, one of the episodes that we've got coming up is with a guy who was on a Polaris nuclear missile submarine. I was particularly interested in hearing his his story, and you know how you actually deal with a a job like that psychologically so there's a, there's loads of elements but i just find it a fascinating period and a lot of other people do i think 
I agree. Do, do you think, Ian, based on the interviews that you've done and the people that you've encountered as you've got the podcast's momentum going, is there a nostalgia that people have for that period, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s? Notwithstanding the impending loom, I think everybody felt that there was an Armageddon coming. And I, I remember growing up in the 1980s and with movies like, uh, well, I guess Threads over here, The Day After, uh, that ran on ABC, War Games. There was always this feeling that, that we were really not too far from from being blown out of the water. But do you think that when you consider the, the culture, the music, the, the cinema, the television, people hark back to those days with, with some sense of fondness? I think I think they do. I mean, you've you've heard of the term nostalgia yep. with um, East, East Germany, but I think there's a there's a bigger element than that. It, it's a almost a nostalgia for a time when things were, whilst they, it was really scary, were more certain. You know, there were the two big power blocks there. You know, and it, it was a a sort of clearer world in terms of ideology and and all that sort of stuff whereas i think today's world is a is a lot more uncertain but i think the other element is people are always nostalgic about their childhood and that's where i think some of it comes back from is they remember this stuff from their childhood you know they remember the films on the news of the parades in red square and nato exercises and protect and survive over here and 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 things like that so so they re- they remember that period and it it sort of brings back for a lot of people fond memories from their childhood i think it's funny you mention um what you might remember from your childhood. I can remember back in Canada, we used to have tests uh, intermittently of the emergency broadcast system from the U.S. channel feeds that would be coming over. And we'd be watching cartoons on a Saturday morning or after school TV programs in the middle of the day, and you would automatically hear this loud buzzing noise for about 30 seconds, and then they would inform you that it was just a test of the emergency broadcast system, and if there was a real emergency, that you'd be notified. But it's it's just fascinating to go back in time like this and and think about what we experienced the craziness of it that you you can't make this stuff up it's just incredible yeah well we we didn't have that thankfully i think that would have uh, made us even more unsettled um if we'd had that coming through on a on a regular basis <laughs> i mean i think i think the other thing that that fascinates me about it is i did go on holiday in eastern europe during the, this period so in uh, September 1980, I was in Poland. Mm-hmm. So for those of you that know your Cold War history will know that the so- Solidarity was authorized as a free trade union the month before. Yeah. And certainly for those two weeks that we were out there, you there was an element of, are the Russian tanks going to come in and is, is this going to get put down? I also went to Czechoslovakia in the early 80s to uh, Prague, which was... A really interesting place to go to. I returned to it a couple of years ago for the first time in mm-hmm. like almost 30 years. And certainly going to those countries in the 1980s was a bit like going back in time. Yeah. It had that sort of feel of the 1930s. There wasn't a lot of money in terms of building renovation and stuff like that. So it, the, you know, the place did look quite, um, run down. But in Prague, one of my abiding memories was, um, uh, my mother had to phone the tour guide that we were that we were with. The tour guide had invited us to a weekend uh, cottage, which I don't think was authorised. Mm-hmm. So she'd asked us to meet her at a metro station on the outskirts of Prague, and we'd had to we had something come up that meant we couldn't go. So my mum was calling her from a busy underground station in the middle of Prague in a loud English voice, and the first thing she said, because she knew that our guide's English wasn't very good, was our plans have changed, which, you know, sounds like something straight out of a Cold War spy movie. And there's me say, expecting, yeah. you know, the secret police to be uh, right. jumping us at that at that point. But, you know, they're, they're happy memories for me from a family point, point of view. But the, the, the imagery of the place and the, you know, the posters and the banners and all, all of that still um, stick with me. I think in a previous episode, I mentioned that I visited the Clement Gottwald Museum yep, in right. uh, in Prague, which I think I s- said it's safe to say was probably one of the most boring museums I've ever <laughs> been in. But uh, 
since then, I have found three uh, badges or pins that uh, I still have from some, some great memories from ever. from that visit. But yeah, no, fascinating. So that that's really it. You know, it's a, it's an amalgamation of of things, and and really to top it is is that it's just such an interesting period in time, and there's echoes of it today as well. I would agree. Now, you you mentioned the term a few minutes ago, nostalgia, which is I think something that we all associate to the GDR to East Germany. Now, when we met face to face for the first time a couple of months ago you told me a little bit about your visit when you were a little bit older i think it was in in the late 1980s to east germany and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that trip occurred what were some of the more memorable elements of it that really struck you because that was effectively at the time the microcosm between the east and the west yeah yeah i mean that that i'm so glad that i managed to get there before before everything before the vendor um, and this was in uh, June 1989, and it really occurred by accident. I had a friend of mine who was really keen to see REM, and they were playing in in um, West Berlin. I, th- I said, oh, that sounds like fun. I've mm-hmm. always wanted to see Berlin, so went went along there. I did go and see REM, but I did spend most of my time in East Berlin because I was just enchanted by yeah. the place. I just yeah. found it fascinating, and the, the concept of a city divided in half on the basis of ideology was also a really interesting concept you know when that you could see particularly if you were in the east you could see this sort of like forbidden city in the these sparkling lights in in the distance was a a sort of fascinating piece of imagery for me but crossing the border lived up to all expectations i mean everybody or most of the listeners will have hopefully seen the spy who came in from the cold. Yep. It perhaps wasn't as uh, traumatic as the uh, the Richard Burton um, experience, but certainly the controls in terms of being when when you went through when they examined your passport, you were in a booth with the guard. The guard was behind glass, but the doors were locked both sides. Right. So you stepped in and the door locked behind you and you couldn't get out the other one. And there was also a mirror behind you so that the guard could see whether you were trying to conceal anything behind your back. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And so they'd look at the passport and give you a good stare Mm -hmm. and check and then check again and then click the door would open, then you'd go through, and then you'd have to exchange your currency because mm-hmm. you had a fixed exchange rate. So you ex- had to exchange 25 Deutschmarks for 25 East Marks, yep. whereas the probably the proper exchange rate was four, would have been four times that or, or, or something like that. And then if you had a lot of baggage with you, they might search your bags or something like that. And then you'd step out of Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin, and probably the first thing that I remember is the smell of the two-stroke. Yeah. Engines. I mean, a lot of people talk about how dull and um, sort of grey the place was, and I think that's almost come from people watching a lot of black and white movies yep. and the impression of it. Because you know, people did wear colour. Okay, some of the cars were a were a dull, you know, were a dull colour, but there was there was colour there. There was less advertising, and I think that's probably why there's an element of people talking about less color there mm-hmm. but so so we went into um east berlin i tried to dress down to try and blend in right and traveled a lot on the public transport which is something i like to do today because i think you see much more of a city if you yeah. go on public transport and in an effort to blend in i picked up a uh, copy of um i can't remember what the party newspaper is, is. deutschland yeah, yeah. neues deutschland um picked up a copy of that and was Really, that trying to blend. I don't think I fooled anybody at all because I think what tends to give you is the footwear. The footwear yep. will give you will give you away more than more than anything. So had a fascinating time there. Went and saw a classical music concert for something like fifty pence there in the the recently refurbished concert house on Gendarmen uh, Markt, mm-hmm. and just really enjoyed. Uh, exploring a place, particularly away from the main streets, because as soon as you got off the main streets, Berlin, East Berlin, was almost like a film set. So they they make sure that the the main streets look really great. You'd get off onto the side streets, and it would look like World War Two had just finished with pockmarked walls, and yeah. Yeah, you know that's what I'd heard. Which is it's it's fascinating in that sense. And during your time in East Berlin, how did 
what you experience compared with what we might see in TV shows like Deutschland 83 or uh, The Lives of Others? Uh, were there were there any facets that you've seen in popular culture today, how it's represented, that were especially accurate or any differences that you might have encountered? I think, yes, there, but all of those are, are, are pretty accurate representations. I think that the challenge is is that there tends to be a lot of focus around the Stasi, and if you ask anybody about East Germany, that's probably one of the things that 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 people mention the first. Whereas, I think it's important to recognise that a huge proportion of the population just went about their daily lives and were fine with that. You know, they weren't overly concerned. Well, they were concerned about shortages and difficulty in getting services done and getting a phone and those sort of things, but. You know, it was just what they had and what they accepted and, and, and just got on with it. Whereas obviously some people were greatly affected by the Stasi and, and suffered greatly, greatly under that regime. So it's a, you know, it's, there's, there's contrast in any country, but I think it, it's good to see the other side of it. I mean, there's a collection of uh, East German home movies that have just been released online. I can't. I think the website's called Memory Box or something like that. But that's a fascinating insight into just everyday life because movie cameras were, or cine cameras were, quite readily available in East Germany. The film was expensive, but I remember my dad having a cine camera in the UK and the film being like crazy money for just three five minutes worth of uh, footage. So. You know, interesting insights. And I think the more you look into the history, the more you realize there is certainly with East Germany a lot more to the story than just the Stasi. And you've got an episode coming up that I'm very looking forward to. And I not not to preempt this, but uh, the the interview you've got with Dean Reed's daughter. Um, that has to be, to my opinion, one of the most fascinating stories about East Germany that I have ever come across. I, I, I literally have just finished reading his biography and, and finding more out about the, the most famous American no American ever knew about. Uh, yeah, I, I've done an interview with Ramona Reed, who is uh, Dean's daughter from his uh, first marriage. Yeah. Um, and that is a, a really interesting story. It's going to be broadcast over two episodes because we talked for so long. And Ramona was a great... Um, great guest, very honest, very very forthcoming. And Dean Reed is a fascinating character. I mean, you know, there's this American singer who certainly had the film star looks. He's a he's a good looking guy who had some success in the US, had bigger success in Latin America, and it was the success in Latin America that then drew him to his socialist ideals yeah. and then to him uh, becoming a huge star in the Eastern Bloc. Yeah, exactly. So one last question about your experience in the GDR. You've talked a little bit about going into the country. What was it like exiting the GDR when you went back to West Berlin? Um, it was probably the, the description I gave you before, to be honest, because they're obviously keener on stopping people getting out yeah. than, than people getting in. So that's where you would certainly get a very um, good look over comparing your uh, passport photo to what you actually look like. And in fact, my friend who I went over to see the REM gig with, when we came back through Friedrichstrasse late one night... Um, he was held for about half an hour oh. because he his passport was just on the verge of expiring. So yeah. it's quite an old photo of him when he was at school, and of course he his features had sure, changed, yeah, yeah. and uh, he was he was held for quite some time there while they were just checking out his story and making sure oh, that he was uh, you know genuine. Wow, that must have been a scary experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. Well, I want to shift the focus now, Ian, to the work you're doing with regards to the podcast. I'm really curious, when what gave you the idea about starting Cold War Conversations? What was the impetus that you felt you really wanted to explore using this media method? Um, well, I'd, I did, I'd previously done some work on community radio. Um, and that was a bit by accident. I had uh, a relative who was doing a media course and she wanted, well, she'd got this sort of placement at this community radio station and wanted somebody to come along. And I came along and we were doing the Saturday afternoon sports show. And I really enjoyed it. 
And she decided she didn't want to carry on. And I carried on at the station for about uh, another year and really enjoyed that side of things. I enjoy being creative but have a passion for history and have yep. always been looking for ways to sort of marry that together. And, and doing a sports show, it was difficult to fit too much history into that. So I was looking for areas to sort of work, work on and then came across a, a podcast called Spybury, which is run by a guy called um, Shane Whaley. And in dialogue with him over social media, I discovered he was really interested in East Germany. And he said, oh, yeah, you should do a podcast, you should do a podcast. And I, you know how it is, you prevaricate and prevaricate. And in the end, I thought, yeah, okay, let's give it a go. You know, we'll see, you know, whether we can get two or three listeners to this. And so uh, I started Cold War Conversations. And the main reason I wanted to do that rather than purely East Germany is I wanted to have a broader picture of the the period and didn't necessarily want to limit myself. And I'm, I'm conscious that the podcast still has quite a strong slant towards East Germany because I do have a fascination for that. And I really have no shortage of guests who appear to want to talk about that. But it was also a sense of capturing these personal stories before they were lost. Yeah. You know, that, that, that was one of the drivers behind it because I'm very conscious that some of the stories of people from World War Two, whilst museums have recorded some of the oral histories, some of those have been lost. And I think these stories deserve a wider audience. You're, you're dead on the money, I think, when we consider the fact that the Berlin Wall came down literally 30 years ago next month. We're recording this in October right now. But you think that people our age are effectively senior citizens at this point, and, and capturing some of these memories is, is just so crucial, because there's so many different stories that need to be told when it comes to East Germany, the former Soviet Union, many of the East Bloc countries, etc. Yeah, I mean, a, a perfect example of that is an email I got just the other week, which was from uh, the wife of an of somebody who I'd been um, talking about interviewing, and he was a, a missileer of a Titan missile um, in the in the US, and we'd set up the the you know the call, we were ready to go, and you know, sad, sadly he he he's passed away, but. That's exactly, you know, one of the reasons is to capture these stories, these first-hand accounts of, you know, what, you know, it's the it's the natural question. What was it like? What did you think? How did you feel? It's all of that. So going on that, that theme for a second, what was it like? How do you feel? In terms of the podcast itself, we're up to how many episodes now? About 80 or so? Yeah, yeah, something like that. We're coming up to the 100, I think, in February, I in think February, it'll be the 100. That's so, just incredible, uh, and congratulations on that. Now, that, that begs the question then, as you have been putting together the podcast from episode one all the way through to today, what are the things that have surprised you the most uh, in terms of the, the whole experience running this podcast, whether it comes to recruiting the guests, doing the interviews, mm -hmm. the technology, etc.? What's really stood out for you as something that you might not have anticipated? I think it's the interest from it. I thought, you know, when I started it out, I thought, you know, maybe, you know, there'll be a hundred, few hundred people who, who might want to listen to it. And we're, you know, we're getting tens of thousands a month that are, that are, you know, uh, listening to the, um, the podcast. But it, it's, it's a it's a mixture of things. I mean, I've learned a lot around technology and audio, and hopefully the uh, listeners will have noticed an improvement in the quality of some of the audio as the um, as the podcasts have gone on. But weird, weird experiences like meeting a listener at an event and them saying, "Gosh, it's really weird speaking to you in person," and it makes you realize the intimacy that you actually have with a podcast because it is generally not listened to in on a community basis. Mm -hmm. It is a very one-to-one -one conversation. And for somebody to, to say that is, I don't know, I, did, I certainly found that quite unnerving. I would well imagine. And can you give us a sense as well what opportunities the podcast has opened up for you and, and your, your interest in history? Um, it's allowed me to contact people i would normally have no right to contact and say will you come on the podcast i mean you know you, you're aware of some of the guests we've we've had you know with sergey khrushchev the son of nikita khrushchev um gary powers jr but also with you know what what i'm i'm loving is just some of the 
ordinary stories that that wouldn't get told. I mean, the most recent one, and you know, as we say, we're we're recording this in October, was with um, Ancha, who married the English guy, and that is an incredible story and so warm and and lovely. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, so I'm running out of adjectives adjectives to uh, describe that, but those sort of stories are just fan- and that that would have probably never been never been told. On other occasions, I've interviewed people who've not perhaps even shared their story with their family mm-hmm. or have shared some of the emotions they've experienced with um, with their family as well. So it's it's quite a responsibility, actually. I think that's one of the one of the things that I found quite. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Not interesting, but almost a bit unnerving, is the responsibility that I have to record these stories and and listen in an objective way but i will say that from the standpoint of the guests that you've had on i'm really impressed at the extent to which that objectivity has been able to flow through and and i i consider the the, the distance philosophically between say a, a laurie hahn who was a canadian fighter pilot all the way through to victor grossman who is an american who who moved to east germany uh, but but one of the things that really i think stands out for me is the extent to which these people can explain their experiences explain their backgrounds and explain how their backgrounds really contributed to their experiences in the Cold War, and you're able to draw these out, and listeners are able to gain an appreciation, whether or not they might agree with the different points of view, they're able to gain an appreciation for what these individuals lived and the the, the stories that they're able to share with us over the course of a discussion with yourself through 60 to 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, it's... It is an absolute honor to speak to these people and for them to share their, their, their story with me. Um, you know, they are trusting me with something that's very personal to themselves. And I'm very, as I said before, I'm very honored to be, you know, give, given that trust. And, you know, from the feedback I'm getting and with uh, Laurie Horn, that, that came through from uh, another guy who said, "Oh yeah, I've got a whole load of people who want to, you know, who who want to tell their story." And that's often how the interview, how the next guest comes about, is I'll interview somebody, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, you need to speak to so and so." So, Victor Grossman, I was aware of. I'd read his book, and I didn't really have a means to contact him. But I interviewed um, John Green, who was the British journalist who worked for East German TV, yep. and he said, "Oh, I know Victor." And I'm like, great. Let's, you know, can can you, you know, can you vouch for me? Give me, give me a good <laughs> word. And with Victor, you know, we were on the phone for for ages yeah. there. Yeah, and a great conversation. He was very down to earth. And what I appreciated about Victor was the, the willingness to to really give his point of view and and unapologetic for it as well. You yeah. know, that that's living history that, that you know is priceless in 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 our in our day and age. And that that begs another question, Ian. From the standpoint of the interviews that you've done, from the standpoint of the, the guests and the themes that you've touched on, what have been some of the more memorable ones that have stood out for you, notwithstanding that they've all been fantastic? There have got to be a few elements that have really touched you personally. What would those be? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, they're all memorable in 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 their own way. But I think, you know, amongst the the ones that probably stand out is um Torsten the East German army officer mm-hmm. who I got in contact with and discovered that he lived about 25 miles away from me so sitting in the kitchen of a former East German army officer drinking his coffee 
and chatting about the Cold War. I'd never thought I would be doing that. And, you know, again, we spoke over two hours. It's ended up as three episodes. Mm -hmm. Some of those are amongst the most popular ones um, for people to listen to. And it was amazing. I mean, the Sergei Khrushchev one was incredible. That came off the back of me speaking with Gary Powers Jr. That, you know, somebody who'd actually seen Stalin, had met Beria, had been around at the time, at, at the, you know, the right hand of somebody who was dealing with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Berlin Crisis and all of that stuff was absolutely incredible. So there's they're almost too numerous to mention the 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 memorable ones but there there are some standout ones there that certainly sort of make me think wow it's it's almost a bit it's a bit like the imposter syndrome it's sort of like god oh, these these guys you know they this is proper history here and they're talking to me yeah Exactly, exactly. It's a great opportunity that you, you've been able to have in that regard. I want to shift the, the interview now a little more towards the, the Cold War on the whole. And something that I've been fascinating, fascinated with, given the fact that you have made such a study of this, are there any particular angles or periods of the Cold War that you find more interesting or, or of particular interest to you that, that really stand out as ones that if you perhaps see a documentary coming on TV, you have to watch or a book that comes out in the bookstore that you actually have to buy? I think listeners will probably guess, actually. The, uh, I, I mean, I do find East Germany um, fascinating on a, on a number of levels. But it, it's, you know, it, imagine your country and your whole way of life disappearing over overnight. And having to deal with capitalism where you've never had to deal with anything like like that before, you know, that that I just find absolutely mind blowing. And it, it, it's where I find it is almost the most interesting part when I'm interviewing people who lived in East Germany is how, how, how did you deal with that? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I keep finding stories in subjects that I'd never necessarily heard of as well. I mean, Victor Grossman, I was aware of, but I don't think. A, a lot of other people were aware of in terms of a U.S. soldier crossing from west to east. You mm -hmm. know, people are very familiar with the east to the east to west uh, transfer. And in fact, I've got an interview with a uh, another citizen of the of the GDR who who went from west to to east as well. But I'll uh, keep you uh, make sure you stay subscribed exactly. for that one. Yeah, yeah, stay tuned. Um, but. Um, it's i think east east germany i do i do find interesting but i am keen to expand the range of uh subjects in the in the podcast um into particularly i want more stories from the eastern bloc mm -hmm. first hand accounts excellent and curiously as well are there any angles of the cold war that you feel deserve more representation perhaps in history or in popular culture ones that might have been underreported that have always gone under the radar but perhaps have had just as much of an impact as some of the more obvious ones i think that there's a lot more to be told about uh, some of the proxy wars particularly the ones in uh, south africa i mean it's interesting that in deutschland 86 they did cover that area and i think people were quite certainly from some of the reviews i saw people were quite surprised by that more so because they were disappointed it wasn't set in east germany for the whole series yeah. um but that that sort of element there of uh the the proxy wars you know the story of the russian or the soviet experience in afghanistan mm -hmm. um you know there's a few movies out there but it's it's pretty similar to the Vietnam experience for the for the United States. Um, as far as other areas are concerned, I mean, it you know, Abel Archer, huge people have become much more aware of that because of Deutschland eighty three, eighty three, yeah, eighty three, yeah. Keep track of them. Um, <laughs> you know, people become more aware of that. But I think you know the the shooting down of KAL 007, um and all those other elements in that build-up to it, I think, are, are relatively unknown. You know, the Americans taking carriers into uh, seas off the coast of uh, Russia in, in Asia and um, flying aircraft at their coast 
and then turning away at the last minute to test out their radar. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that... It's it's stories like that that people just don't know about. Exactly, and and I, you know it's funny you mentioned Abel Archer. There's much more discussion about Abel Archer the last few years. I suspect probably prompted by Deutschland '83 than than I, I think most people had, had ever heard of. It was featured a little bit in a 1980s retrospective TV show, a documentary series that CNN did uh, in in the states as well. But but it's stories like this, uh, as you say, that I, I don't think have been reported, but but certainly are gaining more exposure and. And fascinating people as we find out more and more about what happened. And very quickly, off topic, Deutschland 83, Deutschland 86, what's your review? I liked elements of them. I wasn't so keen on the comedic side of it, inserting that in. I would have probably preferred, uh, and we, we, I think we may come on to this when you, when you asked me my, uh, what should be made into a movie. Um, I, I enjoyed them, but I don't know. I I just found it some of the it was a bit too slapstick in places for me. Yeah, no, fair enough. I I certainly found eighty six. My my view was it tried to do too much with the series, whereas eighty three I thought was a lot more focused and you you could follow it on. But that's another story for another day. And eighty nine's coming up soon, isn't it? That'll be a fascinating one. I'll yeah. be interested to see how they approach that. Yeah. Is it going to be the same cast? It is. I don't know whether you've seen, they've issued a photo of the cast no. sort of dressed up as West Germans post-vendor. I've, I've got visions of MC Hammer pants and stuff. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if we're to talk a little bit about the, the, the Cold War and some of the individuals that really prompted the evolution of this period of time. I'm very curious to find out, given your interviews, given your research in history, um, is there a personality that you admire the most or that you have a great deal of admiration for from either side of the debate and the discussion that, that comes through for you? I mean, as I s sort of said earlier, I mean, every veteran and every civilian I, I speak to is a fascinating because it's a personal story it's another pers personal viewpoint and whether you agree with their politics or not i admire all of them in terms of their honesty in terms of telling telling their story and 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 giving their their viewpoint it's always difficult because people will be looking back with a lens of modern day life but as as we've mentioned with victor grossman even with the lens of modern day life, he is still unrepentant about his views and, and which direction Germany um, should have gone in. So I just admire all of them for feeling that they can talk to me, to be honest, sure. and have that you know broadcast over the internet. If we're thinking about some of the big personalities during the Cold War, perhaps ones that you might not have had the chance to, to meet, historical figures... Who would you say is probably the most underrated when it comes to the Cold War? And who would you say is the most overrated? Ooh. How long have you got? <laughs> so the most overrated. It's difficult. It's difficult to say. I mean, Reagan is a really interesting character because... In the early part of his presidency, he is very much Soviet Union's the evil empire and, you know, really anti them. And then he appears to have a sort of realization that that rhetoric is really dangerous and is causing is causing problems. And he almost has an about face in terms of, you know, for him to go to Reykjavik and and actually be working on a complete abolition of nuclear weapons, a complete abolition is, I can't think of any sort of about face of that magnitude from a political point of view than I, that I've ever, that I've ever seen before. So he, he's a, a fascinating character, whether he's overrated or underrated it, I guess it depends on which biography you read or, or which political um, persuasion um, you are. Um, Khrushchev is an interesting character as to if he wasn't ousted, where that would have gone, because I think there is some evidence there that he was looking to carry out possibly Gorbachev-style uh, reforms there that could have transformed the, the Soviet Union. Kennedy is 
obviously another one who you know where would that have gone if he'd if he'd maintained his 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 uh presidency um i guess that you know that those are the the big ones but there's the the other ones like um the people who've averted um nuclear missile launches yeah. you know where the technology had let them down and they thought actually we're not going to go ahead and 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 press the button here well i'll ask you one here that that might be controversial but i think it warrants the fact that we're in london to to pose this how do you think from the standpoint of history thatcher will be treated from the standpoint of being a cold warrior she is an interesting character from a Cold War point of view because she was very much against, initially, against the reunification of Germany. She was very fearful of what of what that might mean and was um, won over in the end to uh, acquiesce to, to that being um, allowed. Um, and also she was very quick to, or, or apparently quite quick to, Recognised that Gorbachev was in a very different mould of from the previous leaders of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and somebody who was prepared to reform and 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 to listen. So, and I think that that was important for him for Gorbachev as well because it probably af- helped to affirm with Reagan that Gorbachev was somebody that he could do business with yeah. as well. If because there was that obviously that. That closeness between Thatcher and um, and and Reagan. I mean, Thatcher's an interesting character because, I mean, without the Falklands War, there's an argument that she probably wouldn't have been had that longevity as a prime minister. Certainly during the Cold War period, her government was in quite quite crisis there uh, prior to then, and was elected, you know, re-elected with a landslide after after that after that point. She's an. Imp- I think it's safe to say she's an important figure yeah. um, in in the Cold War, and certainly one that I think helped ease Western fears around Gorbachev being perhaps a, a dupe or some sort of front for the uh, the Soviets to gain some sort of advantage. It's uh, a really interesting answer, uh, and I appreciate it. Having done a lot of study of, of Thatcher uh, in university and and her impact, I, I think that uh, you're right. You're gonna ask that question to uh, 10 different people, you're going to get 10 very different answers. But there's no question, I think, that she was a very substantive personality in the period, especially as the Cold War came to an end. And you touch on something about the reunification of Germany. I think that's getting more discussion now than it, than it ever did in terms of the fact that there's documentation coming out uh, that, that's uh, finishing up. The, I think it's the 25-year period of cabinet secrets. And we're starting to find out just a little bit about some of the fears that people of that generation had potentially about a reunified Germany. Yeah, I mean, I have got an interview which I've already recorded with somebody who was a translator for Thatcher when she was speaking with Cole. Um, over certain areas and he also worked at the British Embassy in East Berlin or the British Mission in in East Berlin um, yet to be uh, published but again make sure you stay subscribed exactly more incentive to keep subscribed okay so we talked a little bit about Deutschland 83 and Deutschland 86 Uh, you you know I think that that bears out a really interesting question for you as as a consumer of popular culture which television shows and movies do you think best encapsulate the period Ones that have been done, say, in most recent past that are touching on elements of the Cold War, which, which stand out for you? Well, the, the ones that stand out for me are probably the, the obvious ones. A, a firm favorite for me is The Americans. Amazing. Um, yeah. Very over the top in terms of what Soviet agents would have got up to in, in, in the U.S., but so fascinating on so many levels with the family dynamics of having to work undercover and and hide your identity for so long in a in a foreign country but i think it also reflected very well the paranoia on both sides of what others were thinking because you know when they were talking to their controller and their view of what was what was going on versus what what you knew was was actually happening was was fascinating and a great series and that last episode was just amazing so many series end on a let down last episode but the americans lived up to all expectation 
that last episode of The Americans, I had to rewatch a second time because it was so good. It was such a, an artistic piece of television, I thought, uh, especially the point where they drop uh, or they stop at Grouse's Point just before going over the border into Canada. Yeah. And just a, a fun fact, yeah. I live literally... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I live about maybe a 45-minute drive from that point. It's it's really quite something. So just to see it and think I've actually stood on that platform is, is just wild. Um, you know, I, I'd be curious. Did you watch the TV show by the BBC called The Game? Yes, I did. What did I you did. Think of that? I thought that was great. Actually, yeah. I thought that was that was really good. I'd forgot I'd forgotten about that. I mean, there is so much now with Netflix and yeah. Amazon and whatever, just trying to keep track of the stuff. But The Game was excellent. It was very much in the mold of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It was filmed in that same sort of style. That's it was seventies, right. so it had all that retro vibe that everybody loves. And was very suspenseful. I thought yeah. I thought that that was great. I mean, the 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 other one that you know I I think he's good is the same sky. Love that show. And that was particularly interesting in terms of representation of life in East Germany, with uh, the daughter being pushed into um, the gymnastics work and the steroid uh, abuse there. That was that was absolutely um, absolutely fascinating. And I think there's even more. You know, there, there will be more of these sort of series coming out because there definitely is an appetite and there's a great dramatic backdrop yeah. with the Cold War. Exactly. And uh, it's funny because I've talked to people who came from the former GDR and they said that the same sky was a very accurate representation of what life was like. It was not glossed over or papered over like we've seen perhaps in, in other movies and series. It, tell me, from the standpoint of your own interest in some of the historical information out there do you have a particular documentary or a particular book about the cold war that, that really stands out for you the gdr handbook which is produced by uh Taschen, i think it is um and in association with the vendor museum in los angeles is excellent because that does give you a good insight into the ordinary life of east germans and consumer goods and sofas and furniture and you know really what some people might consider really dull stuff but is is really interesting because i think again you look at things with a modern lens and you're thinking gosh that you know god they had horrible furniture and they had horrible this horrible that whereas i remember my parents lounge looking pretty similar to you know for example the east german apartment in the ddr museum in uh in in berlin so it, it it you have to be careful when you're looking back at this stuff that you're not looking at it with a with a modern lens and not thinking about what was life like in the the western countries i'm not saying that you know living in the east was a you know bowl of cherries and was great in every aspect, but I remember growing up in the UK in the 1970s and we had three TV channels, not a lot of choice in the supermarkets and everything shut on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it wasn't necessarily, you know, what, it, again, it's looking at that modern lens and, and what the, what life was actually like in, during that period in other countries as well. What would you say would be your favorite fiction film about the Cold War? And and this doesn't have to necessarily be one produced post-Cold War. It could have been a Cold War movie that was done during the period, too. I'm always a big fan of submarine movies, and Hunt for Red October is always Classic. A, fa a favorite. I can, I can watch that again and again, despite Sean Connery's <laughs> amazingly poor Russian. Um, but it's uh, it's uh, an, an excellent film um i love funeral in berlin mm -hmm. with michael kane as harry palmer that's that's a uh an excellent film one that's sort of probably on the cusp of the cold war is the third man carol reed black mm -hmm. and white set in vienna it's orson wells mm -hmm. brilliant film brilliantly filmed absolutely brilliantly filmed and a, an amazing soundtrack if any of you listeners haven't watched that i really do recommend that one it's um it's a it's a great great film um and the 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 final scene is is incredible Okay, the, that's the final what I'm scene. Watch. I mean, it, it, yeah, absolutely. You, you should. If you've not seen that, you are in for a treat. 
And the last time we got together, you turned me on to a film that I watched when I got back to Canada. That was Wings of Desire. Ah, yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about what, what really uh, touched you on that one? Because you've spoken to me very eloquently about how that's really one of your favorite uh, pieces of cinema from the period. It, it is, and it is. Yeah, you're right. That is that is fiction. And I did have sort of Wings of Desire down on my list. I think because I visited Berlin in the 1980s, Wings of Desire is a great representation of Berlin in the 1980s. Most of it is filmed in west berlin for obvious reasons um but there are elements where the wall is involved and and things like that but it's very it starts in black and white and then moves into color and it's just visually it's a lovely it's 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 a lovely it's a lovely film it's it's one that's difficult to explain i think why why i like it but um anything with peter falkin has got to be worth a watch that was that was a surprise when I saw Columbo in <laughs> in the movie, but but certainly there there was that one scene where and again spoiler alert where one of the stars ends up effectively becoming a human being uh, from an angel transforming in the middle of the death strip and almost your heart stops when you realize where he is and what's just happened. I won't say any more, but it, it's worth a, a rent. Do not watch the Nicolas Cage remake of it called city of angels i didn't even know that there was a connection yeah that there is it was based on wings of desire i believe interesting interesting um well that's a a very interesting segue to uh, i did have sorry there was one other film that i did want to mention which i think is a is an interesting one because it does portray an area of the cold war that not many people know about and it's a film called the legend of rita and I've mentioned it in in interviews before, um, and that's the English name for it. In uh, German, it's called the um, Stille nach dem Schuss, the silence after the shot. And it's a film that's based on the collusion of the East German uh, secret police and the West German Red Army faction. Okay. And it's about a uh, Red Army faction uh, terrorist who flees to East Germany, they give her a new identity and she basically joins East German society and then the wall falls and the West German security police are, are after them. And it, it's a really interesting contrast to some of the Cold War stories, in terms, yeah. particularly in somebody from West going East, yeah. um, even for their, you know, their, their political convictions there. But I'd, I'd recommend it, and that is available in its entirety on YouTube with English subtitles. Oh, great stuff. Okay, perfect. So, Fantastic. That's another one to put on the list. So, Ian, if you were doing a movie about the Cold War yourself, what would a topic be that you would like to explore? And more importantly, who would you cast in the main roles? Casting, I've got a challenge there because I can't remember the names of, uh, <laughs> of, of actors there. But in terms of a subject, I think, a film that's based around the Cold War turning hot in Europe would be a really interesting subject, and there's a lot you can do with CGI nowadays. So something like um, a Warsaw Pact invasion of Berlin, mm-hmm. I think, could be a really interesting um, film. Uh, a movie that goes into Abel Archer mm-hmm. a bit more, uh, particularly around the intelligence that the East were getting from their deep cover agents in NATO. And I think that's, again, another subject that would be really interesting is the the Stasi deep cover agents in NATO. So, you know, secretaries who they were recruiting and uh, there's the guy Rainer Rupp who reckoned he saved, you know, the world from World War III, um, who was very deep cover in NATO and was passing information and, back that Abel Archer was an exercise it wasn't a preparation for um, nuclear war Um, but one I think would also be good and I'm sure somebody has already bought the movie rights for this one is the um, McIntyre book on Oleg Gordievsky Um, the KGB agent who was the KGB resident in London um, but he was an MI6 agent um, and they'd recruited him quite some years back, and he'd got promoted up, promoted up. 
um and the KGB were onto him through a uh I think it might have been Aldrich Ames. Aldrich Ames, okay. Yeah, wow. Had given them some information that we had somebody high up in uh the KGB who worked in London. So it sort of narrowed it down. And Gordievsky is invited back to Moscow um just purely for a friendly discussion and <laughs> He is drugged and he's interrogated, but he doesn't give any information. So in the classic spy, you know, you've read all the spy novels. Mm-hmm. As long as you keep denying, you know, just just keep doing that. And that's in some ways why Philby didn't yeah. get, you know, uh, caught the first time around, is he just kept denying. Uh, well, there are a load of other reasons there. Um, but so uh, Gordievsky has to um, tell his KGB handlers he needs to be exfiltrated. And I love the, the this great. So he's told to stand at a certain crossing at, in Moscow, carrying a Safeway bag, mm-hmm. um, and then the British agent will walk past uh, with a Mars bar. And if the British agent has seen him, he will acknowledge that by eating the Mars bar. Got it. Or something like that. I can't yeah. remember the detail, but it's, it's something like that. Anyway, they managed to um, pick him up and get him out through Finland, but after quite a convoluted um, route. But it's a, there's a book on it by uh, it's Ben McIntyre, who's the author. Yeah, okay, I've seen that. That actually was, I think, number one on the bestseller list for a it's while. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing – I mean, if somebody wrote it as a novel, you probably wouldn't believe parts of it. That's, that's it it is a fascinating story. Man, oh man. That, that really so that, that definitely deserves a movie. I would say it would. I would say it would. And thinking about some of the personalities that, that you perhaps have encountered or perhaps some of the more historical figures, if you were to have a Cold War dinner party at your house, I was curious, who would you invite? Who would be the three people you'd like to have around the table? I think we've covered some of them. I mean, Reagan, mm-hmm. I'd love to talk to him about. How did he come to change his mind over the Soviets and Gorbachev? What, what made him do that? I think there's some evidence that watching the day after film yeah. had a really big Im- impact on him. Kennedy, and I know these are predictable, but I just love to be walked through. How did you come around to your decisions around the Cuban Missile Crisis? There's a there's a group that I've um, seen a couple of times they're called the foreign field living history group and uh, they do this simulation of the cuban missile crisis and you are kennedy and they feed you the information that kennedy had Mm -hmm. and you have to make there's seven or eight steps where you have to make decisions and if you make the wrong decision the soviets get the wrong end of the stick and you trigger nuclear war and you have to step through each of the and it's a brilliant simulation and i'd just like to understand from kennedy the man himself how he worked his way through that and how he kept the hawks at bay and how he kept them from triggering because you know the options you're given in this simulation is your u2 pilot has been shot down in cuba do you send a team in to exfiltrate him or destroy the uh the the plane yeah and yeah okay that that seems to make sense let's do that and then the next the next step will be they've captured your exfiltration team mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you do that you know and it and it sort of escalate it's really it works really well it I, re- I recommend really it interesting, yeah. it's it's a really it's a really fascinating um it's a fascinating way of teaching history really because it puts you in the hot seat yeah. that's it so there's uh kennedy and the other one would be marcus wolf great choice you know the uh, the former head of the East German Overseas Intelligence Service. Um, the, probably the the top question I'd like to ask him is: Were there any agents that we never found in deep cover that are quietly mowing their lawns in Munster? Yep. <laughs> Yeah. And it's a very relevant question. You know, I'm glad that you brought him up. I'm curious, at what point do you think – he wrote a great autobiography, um, Man Without a Face. He's had books written about him. At what point do you think we're going to see a film about him? Because he's probably one of the most fascinating characters throughout the entire Cold War. Somebody who was able to effectively reinvent himself multiple times to make sure he was relevant to the times and that he was not on the wrong side of uh, – who he didn't want to be on the wrong side of. 
Yeah, I, I feel that you have to take his autobiography with a bit of a pinch of salt because oh, I, sure, think, yeah. I feel it's very self-serving yep. um, at, at times. And I did raise this question with somebody else as to whether he perhaps thought that with the vendor that there, there could have potentially been a political position for him because he did yep. sort of try and mould himself on the side of the... The reformers, the, the reformers. Gregor Gysi and so Yeah, forth. yeah, yeah. So... Um, He's he's interesting from that point of view. He didn't. He obviously didn't get on with Milka, but then I'm not sure many people no. did. And Milka was a very much from a a different background. He was a street fighter from the 1930s, whereas um, Wolf was, you know, more educated, cultured. You know, he he had a very different uh, a different viewpoint. But that being said, he denies knowledge of the Red Army faction being given asylum in East Germany. I find that very hard to believe that he wouldn't know about that or somebody would mention that at some Stasi get-together. Yeah. So I, I question some 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 elements of that biography, absolutely. But I think he, he is a fascinating character and it would gra- make a great movie. Oh, he, he would be a great dinner guest, a great movie. And it, it's interesting when you mentioned the Red Army faction, the number of people from East Germany in high up positions that deny any knowledge. Like we were talking uh, not long ago about that interview with Eric Honecker that was done in 1991, where he denies complete knowledge that they were within East German territory. And it, it's almost, it almost begs the question, well, then what did you know if you didn't know these guys were there? It, yeah, I find it very hard to believe that a decision like that was not to give them asylum and also train them mm-hmm. to then return and carry out attacks was not taken at a high level because the the diplomatic implications of that coming out would have been huge. Yeah. It's no not question. something that some renegade Stasi officer could have kept quiet. No, exactly. So, Ian, last question from what I think has been an absolutely fascinating interview, and I, I hope that you've had as much fun as I have. It's always fun st- speaking with you, Peter. I mean, it's just <laughs> Thank you. there's just not enough disk space to uh, cover how long we'd probably want to speak. <laughs> well, the, the the last question I think is a very important one for the listenership, and that's what's next for Cold War conversations. Well, who knows? It's the the challenge with Cold War conversations is finding the time because mm-hmm. despite what some um, some people might think, this isn't the day job, yeah. and so it is a challenge to stay on top of things and to publish episodes on a on a weekly basis. But one of the things I'd like to do is to put some of the episodes into a book. But again, it's the the challenge of of finding the 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 time to to do that um as i said earlier what i also want to do is get more from the other side mm-hmm. i want to get more interviews from people from uh the eastern bloc soviet army navy air force and the other eastern bloc countries and there's so much more to cover i mean there really is vietnam mm-hmm. afghanistan and the other proxy wars as well, but also the protest movements. Yep. I want to cover that as well. I'd, I'd like to do uh, an interview around the Kent State and the anti-nuclear movements and and that sort of side of things. Some of the challenge there is finding somebody who can, who uh, particularly from the Eastern Bloc side, speaks English mm-hmm. or is prepared to go on the record. Yep. I think, particularly in the political situation, sometimes there's a bit of a sensitivity of of going on the on the record there. But I have done interviews in the past where the person has been anonymous. Mm-hmm. Essentially, if there's anybody out there, or you know anybody out there who is prepared to share their story and you think it fits Cold War conversations, then do drop me an email. It's uh, very simple. It's Ian at ColdWarConversations.com. Great stuff. Well, Ian, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. It has been an absolute pleasure being on this side of the microphone and being the interrogator. And we'll be looking forward to some fantastic episodes uh, through to uh, 2020. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's it's been great fun. It's been quite a challenge being this side. I don't think I've spoken so much in an episode ever, but it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I hope the listeners find it interesting. If you'd like to learn more about the subjects covered in this episode, do visit our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app or visit coldwarconversations.com. If you like what you're listening to, you can really help us by leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts, our Facebook page, or with your favorite podcast app. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. 
If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners, just like you, continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod and Instagram where we are at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information